Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax reform to the European Union's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services leader. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're back in our D.C. studio, where I'm excited to have Matt Chen. Matt is an international tax partner in our Washington National Tax Services practice. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Hi, hi, Doug. Thank you, and good to be with you. So on September 13th, Matt, we got 157 pages of regulations on global, intangible, low-taxed income. The last couple podcasts, I was in Europe. We were talking about state aid and some European development, so I'm excited to get back to U.S. tax reform. But one thing that we really have not spoken about here on the podcast is guilty. What the heck is guilty? And Matt, really, how did we get here? Sure, Doug. So Congress enacted the 2017 Act last December. And as part of that, Congress added a so-called participation exemption system. And, a territorial and, system, as they call it. As they call it, yes. And prior to the, the amendment of the Internal Revenue Code, earnings of foreign subsidiaries or control foreign corporations or, quote, CFCs, they were taxed at the full U.S. 35% corporate tax rate when they were distributed back to their U.S. shareholders. Of course, that full U.S. tax is then offset by deemed pay foreign tax credits. And because of the full taxation on foreign earnings, it created a so-called lockout effect, which is that U.S. multinationals were less motivated to repatriate their foreign earnings because they didn't want to pay the full uh, corporate income tax rate. So in order to alleviate that lockout effect, Congress added the participation exemption system under which when untaxed foreign earnings are distributed back to the U.S., the tax on that is fully eliminated through a 100% dividends received deduction. And of course, then the corresponding foreign tax credits would be eliminated as well. And that alleviates concerns by U.S. multinationals of the taxation on their foreign earnings. But at the same time, Congress was worried that the U.S. tax pays would be inappropriately eroded if taxpayers were then able to allocate or, quote, shift earnings from the U.S., to low-tax or zero-tax foreign subsidiaries. And once the income is shifted offshore, they could be distributed back onto the U.S. return at no, at no tax. And so in order to address that concern, Congress added the guilty provisions. Of course, under the current system, uh, both before and after the amendment uh, by the Act, Certain foreign earnings were already subject to current U.S. taxation under the so-called subpar F regime. And on top of that, Congress added the guilty provisions, which the way I'm thinking about it is really like a minimum tax on foreign corporate earnings. Yeah, and that was what was certainly described in the conference report that the it appeared to be Congress's intention to say that if income was not subject or if income was subject to tax at least at 13.125%, and we'll talk about how we get to that particular number, that if it was at least subject to that minimum tax overseas, then otherwise sh- shouldn't be subject to tax. And so just to unpack a couple of those comments, um, first of all, all of those historic untaxed earnings before 
we got to our new system that was subject to the toll charge. And we did a podcast, right. a few podcasts ago. That was section 965. Pray give a great overview of the 965 regs and kind of the background of all of those deferred earnings are now deemed distributed back to the U.S. and subject to tax under 965. So instead of wiping out the whole old system, we've really just kind of added on to the new system. We've added this new dividends received deduction, which is section 245 cap A. We haven't received regulations, at least at this point, on 245 cap A, but we understand those are coming. That allows us to be able to bring those untaxed earnings back to the U.S. tax-free under this new participation exemption. Mm-hmm. We still have our historic subpart F rules. Those subpart F rules say that if you've got certain types of income, generally passive income or related party sales or services, then those are deemed distributed back to the U.S. and subject to tax at the full U.S. rate, which is now from 35 to 21. But this new guilty provision, this new global intangible low taxed income provision operates very similarly to the historic subpart F provisions and creates a deemed uh, inclusion, right, for a certain amount of income from those CFCs. So, so tell me about how, what is that amount? Like how, what is the amount of guilty and how is that computed? We can go, dive into some of the regs a little bit later, but just broadly, you know, we, we, there's a deduction, I understand also, which is the section 250 deduction for some of that guilty, but how did they get to that 13.125 minimum tax that you describe? Sure. And, and just for some comparison, uh, guilty is treated in the same manner and computed in the same manner as subpar F in certain ways, but also different in some other ways. But to anchor our discussion, I think we start with, well, subpar F, the way it's been calculated historically, it's a CFC by CFC calculation. You compute each CFC's own subpar F income and its own earnings and profits. And the amount of the subpar F inclusion is limited to that CFC's current year earnings and profits. And guilty operates a little differently. Instead of a CFC by CFC determination, it looks at a particular U.S. shareholder's aggregate combined net income in all of its CFCs or, or that shareholder's pro rata share of its CFC's combined net income. And the starting point is, what types of gross income are in the calculation? We start with the total gross income of a CFC, again, calculated under U.S. tax principles, and you exclude certain items that are already taxed under U.S. rules, like you kick out subpar F, you kick out effectively connected income because those items are already subject to U.S. rules. And then you back out certain items that are expressly excluded for purposes of guilty. The main one that comes to my mind are related party dividends. Those items are kicked out. And then you figure out a routine fixed return on the CFC's tangible depreciable assets. And those assets are commonly called QBI or Qualified Business Asset Investments. Basically, again, um, depreciable tangible assets. So whatever um, amount that's taken into account on, on the gross income side, less the fixed routine return, that's the net income of the CFCs that will need to be taken into account. And the tax rate on this amount plus the associated deemed dividend on so-called gross up 
of related foreign tax credits is then reduced through a 50% deduction. That's how you get to, well, the current full corporate tax rate is 21%, and you reduce it by a 50% deduction, which is on the um, combination of the guilty inclusion and the associated foreign tax credit deemed dividend. That's how you theoretically could get to a uh, 13 and 1 8 percent tax rate, which is actually computed in the legislative history to this provision. That's right. And so this is very interesting to me, Matt, that we have this so-called territorial system. But the way the guilty provisions work is that all of the income the, under U.S. tax concepts at the CFC are subject to immediate tax, except a 10% return on the tax basis of a company's depreciable tangible assets, or in other words, their QBI, as we describe it. And so that really the only amount of earnings that would ever be subject to this Section 245 Cap A dividends received deduction, in other words, our territorial system, is this 10% return on the depreciable tangible assets. And you know, as I've chatted with my clients and traveled around the country, frankly, there are a lot of companies that just, you know, in service industries, for example, that just don't have many depreciable tangible assets. And so practically speaking, what this means is that there is most, if sometimes not all, of the CFC's earnings of a U.S. shareholder, so the foreign earnings are subject to immediate U.S. tax which does beg the question, is this really a territorial system? But maybe we could debate that on, on a separate podcast. Right, separate po podcast. And I also mention, although the name of this provision, guilty, the first I, or global intangible, um, although the name contains the word intangible income, this provision is not limited to income derived from the use of intangible property, or IP, I think the, the fixed return on depreciable tangible assets is maybe a, a placeholder or a high-level proxy for what intangible return might mean. But companies don't necessarily have to have IP in order to be subject to this rule. Absolutely. And I think the other point is, just to keep going through the acronym, it, do, it, it doesn't have to necessarily be low-taxed either to be subject to this particular rule. In other words, all of the income is subject to guilty. And then the question is, how much foreign tax credits, to the extent that a CFC has paid foreign taxes on those underlying earnings, how much do those credits do they get? That's how you get down, as you described, to the 13.125%. I think one of the other challenges that I'm seeing, Matt, for companies is as a result of the fact that you get foreign tax credits from this guilty inclusion, the U.S. has a very complicated system to determine the amount of foreign tax credit limitation that a U.S. shareholder receives or can take as a result of the receipt of this guilty inclusion. So, for example, certain expenses that take place in the U.S. group need to be allocated against these various new baskets of income. Under the old regime, we generally had general basket and passive basket. Under the new regime, we still have the general and the passive basket, but we have some, some new players to the party, which is the guilty basket and the branch basket. And so these historic expenses in the under the old system that have to be allocated against guilty, so for example, interest, R&D, stewardship, amongst others, 
that have to be allocated against our guilty income for purposes of determining how many foreign tax credits that can be taken could limit a U.S. shareholder's ability to be able to utilize foreign tax credits against their guilty income. And I think what we've seen in the commentary and what we've seen in uh, a number of panels and just a lot of discussion, both in the tax press and frankly, even outside the tax press, we've seen some Wall Street Journal articles, is that even companies that are paying at or above 13.125% may still end up with a U.S. taxable income inclusion or, or may end up still paying U.S. tax on their guilty, even though they're paying a very, very high amount of foreign tax. And so that that is not low taxed income, but it is the the way the the rules operate. And I think at least everything that I've seen in, in the press and the public comments that we think that and are anticipating regulations that will help shed some light on how those expenses are allocated. But from everything that I'm hearing that we don't anticipate that Treasury can turn off those expense allocation rules for purposes of guilty. That's my understanding as well, and you brought up a really important point, which is that although you mentioned earlier the reg package is over 150 pages, but they do not address every aspect that's relevant to the guilty regime, most importantly the foreign tax credit computational aspects. So things like, as you mentioned, Congress added new baskets, new foreign tax credit baskets to the code, one of which is the basket for guilty income. And the extent to which or exactly how should expenses like interest and R&D be allocated, if at all, to the guilty basket is something that's subject to future guidance that hopefully we will see over the next couple months. So the sort of the saga continues. Um, one thing that is consistent with what we've seen in the recent IRS guidance is uh, Treasury and IRS have given some indication as to what future guidance might say. So even though this reg package doesn't address foreign tax credit issues, um, it does indicate that uh, Treasury and IRS intend to issue guidance in the future to treat um, the gross up dividend attributable to foreign tax credits um, related to the guilty basket as guilty basket income. So that does provide some clarity to to companies. Yeah, because I think the the issue that you're alluding to was that under the kind of construction of the statute, as when when a U.S. shareholder is taking foreign tax credits for that guilty inclusion, the Section 78 gross up is included as an additional taxable income inclusion, such that you then get a credit for those underlying taxes. And the concern that we had was that under a literal reading of the construction of the statute, that that Section 78 gross up would actually be in the general basket. So it would be yes. in the wrong basket so that companies wouldn't be able to actually create enough foreign source income under our limitation rules to be able to use the guilty credits against the Section 78 gross up. And we understand that you know, it, and I think that was your that was addressed in the in the proposed regs that we will mm -hmm. be seeing some guidance on on that. So maybe we just spend a few minutes talking about just a couple of the highlights from the proposed reg. Obviously, 157 pages, a lot of detail on the mechanical aspects of how you compute tested income and tested losses. Maybe we start with this application of a regulation called 952-2, which is something a lot of us have been very focused on, which generally historically applies for purposes of computing subpart F under U.S. tax principles. 
but talk a little bit about what is 952-2 and, and what does this mean for you know, all of these taxpayers that are now going to have to compute this, have this massive computational exercise to determine their guilty inclusions. Sure, yeah, that, that's, that's one issue that had been hotly debated until these proposed regulations came out, or at least hotly debated within, uh, between tax technicians, I suppose. And, and the question is whether the existing computational rules for subpar F should apply for purposes of computing guilty. And those specific rules that you mentioned um, would say that for purposes of calculating gross and taxable income of a CFC for subpar F purposes, that computation is done by treating the CFC as a U.S. corporation that is subject to U.S. corporate tax rate. And the consequence of that is I, I think um, in determining what deductions are available and the amount and timing of income recognition, you apply the same rules that apply to domestic corporations. But of course, that domestic status is turned off for certain purposes. So for instance, a CFC is not treated as a domestic corporation in a manner that would cause that CFC itself to have subpar F income or guilty. Well, that sort of makes sense. What is less unclear is whether the same computational rules would apply to certain provisions that were recently in enacted that expressly apply to U.S. corporations. For instance, the dividends received deduction, uh, the 100% dividends received deduction that we just talked about, which was added as part of this participation exemption system. There have been questions raised as to whether a CFC itself can take a Section 245 Cap A deduction. That possibility was alluded to in the legislative history, but the, the precise application and scope is unclear. And the proposed regs say that Treasury and IRS are thinking through these issues uh, to determine whether the dividends received deduction should apply at the CFC level, and also whether the new Section 163J limitation on interest deductions or other li deduction limitations should apply, and they welcome taxpayer comments. Yeah, so that's something, speaking of hotly debated, that a lot of us have spent some time thinking about as, as we think about making, you know, having to do these guilty computations and really treating the CFC as a U.S. corporation for purposes of making these determinations, how far do you take that? So 163J is, is a perfect example. Do you have to do these interest limitation calculations at the CFC level for purposes of computing your guilty income? I think that we will get, or I hope and anticipate that we will get some guidance of whether that applies. If we unpack a little bit this 952-2 issue, because you know it's something I've really struggled with and a lot of my clients are asking these questions as they're trying to do their projected calculations and thinking particularly from a book perspective, what is that future, what is that effective tax rate going to, to look like or what does it look like, that how far do you take that 952-2? So for example, what about capital gains and capital and ordinary treatment? Do we have to go through those types of limitations that, that we see between capital and ordinary? Um, a question that has been bantered about, does Section 385 apply for purposes of determining our guilty inclusion? 
and just a lot of very difficult questions because if you take that to the full logical extent, then you have to look at all of those rules if it's really a U.S. corporation. Your point, I think, on the dividend received deduction is that if a CFC holds lower tier CFCs and you're treating the CFC as a U.S. corporation, then do dividends from that CFC, do you get the 245 Cap A inclusion? The other, my other point that kind of where we started with is that I'm speculating that there really won't be that much income that is not already subject to U.S. tax that would even right. be subject. But if that really is a U.S. corporation, there is a, the logical step of, well, does that U.S. corporation need to compute subpart F income for those lower tier CFCs? That seems to go uh, a bit too far so that you have to do like many sub F inclusions and maybe there might be some limitations as far as how those rules that how nine, I think nine fifty two dash two specifically maybe turns off the subpart F rules for purposes of determining that computation, but um, how guilty and how everything else applies down below is, is, is challenging. Right. And I, I think in the past, the IRS had considered the extent to which this domestic status treatment should apply. And, I think in informal guidance, the IRS had concluded that there must be some limits to the domestic status treatment because taken to its logical extremes, you might say, well, if I have a CFC that owns other CFCs, then treating them all as domestic corporations, does that mean they now become a consolidated group for U.S. tax purposes? And our transactions between them are subject to the consolidated return regulations and uh, the, the IRS has considered issues like that in the past, and they may, I, I suspect, they will revisit that type of guidance in coming up with answers that companies are looking for regarding 245 Cap A, 385, and 163J. It, it, it's just, it's a Herculean task for Treasury to really, you know, answer and address all of these issues. And obviously, we're all very much waiting for guidance, but uh, it, it really just, I, I, it just seems overwhelming just the amount of unanswered questions. And I'm certain that we'll see a lot of comments on this particular area. And whether it's future reg packages or the final regs, hopefully we'll get some, some additional clarity on, on how far we take this U.S. corporation or this deemed domestic corporation concept. Let's talk a little bit, Matt, about tested losses. So, you know, one of the things before we got the proposed regs, the the way guilty was is computed, it's actually at the U.S. shareholder level. So unlike subpart F, which is really a CFC concept, it's determined at the CFC level, guilty is really an inclusion that's determined at the U.S. shareholder level. And so there were questions and concerns that if you have multiple U.S. shareholders, for example, and maybe one U.S. shareholder had a CFC that had positive income and another U.S. shareholder had a CFC that had a loss or what they call a tested loss, whether you would be able to offset the tested loss of one U.S. shareholder against the tested income of another U.S. shareholder. And so the proposed regs tell us that we get to be able to treat the entire group as one U.S. shareholder for purposes of our tested income and tested loss. But can you shed a little bit of light on that? And then there are some basis adjustments, a lot of complexity. I'm not sure we're going to be able to get into, but just shed a little light on that, on, on the mechanics of those rules. Right. And and I, I, I think that that's a really important point. Um, the Under the statute, it's a pure U.S. shareholder by U.S. shareholder determination. And there, there is a concern that if one U.S. shareholder owns CFCs with tested income and one other 
in the same consolidated group with CFCs with tested losses that you may not be able to offset the income with the losses. The way that uh, IRS and Treasury dealt with that issue is to have the aggregate uh, pro rata share of tested income and tested losses of a U.S. consolidated group added together, and then that amount is then allocated to the consolidated return members so that you don't have this problem of income not being able to be offset by 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 losses and similar rules we won't have time to get into that but similar concepts are also also show up in situations where you have a u.s partnership that owns cfcs with uh where that u.s partnership has u.s consolidated group or u.s partners u.s corporate partners um the, the regs would operate in a way that um would allow the you know the the in some situations, these the U.S. shareholders to directly calculate their own guilty inclusion. Yeah, this was a question that we had spent a lot of time, Matt. You know, thinking about because the way the guilty provisions and generally the architecture of subpart F, it's the U.S. shareholder, right? That generally includes the subpart F income. Well, as we mentioned, guilty is a little different because it's the U.S. shareholder that actually has that guilty inclusion. So a U.S. partnership is a U.S. person and therefore is a U.S. shareholder. And so the the regs take, I think they, they call it this modified approach as far as modified aggregate versus entity approach um, to the to the rules. Um, specifically, you mentioned that when you've got a U.S. shareholder or a U.S. partner that is a partner in a U.S. partnership, when that U.S. partnership then owns shares of a CFC. But could you just high level talk right. about how do those how do those partnership rules work? Right. I mean, as an example, and I think that this is meant to be meant to help taxpayers in many cases. Meaning, if you had a U.S. corporation that itself, let's say it owns a CFC with tested loss. That U.S. corporation is also a partner in a U.S. partnership that owns CFCs with tested income. There's a concern that the tested losses in the U.S. partner's hands won't be able to be offset by the tested income of CFCs held by the U.S. partnership. And Treasury and IRS didn't want taxpayers to have to restructure their, their legal structure just to allow the proper offset of income and losses. So they say that in that case, the U.S. partner, to the extent that is treated as a U.S. shareholder of the CFCs held by the partnership, that U.S. partner can determine its guilty inclusion directly from the CFCs that are held by the partnership. So that way you get to offset tested income and tested losses between different CFCs. And that is, you know, obviously taxpayer friendly, and that's very con that's consistent with the consolidated group rule. But obviously, because you would have a partnership interposed, that consolidated group rule wouldn't fix that particular issue. So the architecture of the guilty regulations allowed taxpayers to be able to offset the tested income and and tested losses. That, that that's right. And I I just bef before we sort of uh, leave the topic of how you calculate. Um, income and losses. I, I, I think it might be worthwhile to talk a little bit about um, the pro rata share rule, meaning uh, a guilty is an inclusion of a U.S. shareholder's pro rata share of the CFC's guilty and various types of attributes such as tested income, tested loss, 
the QBI, meaning the depreciable tangible assets, and interest income, interest expenses. So how does a U.S. shareholder determine its pro rata share of those items? And as we mentioned earlier, guilty operates very similarly to subpar F in various respects. So in this one respect, the guilty proposed regs also tell us to look at the pro rata share rules that are found in the existing subpar F regulations. Now, those particular pro rata share rules have also been updated um, in this proposed package. So companies will need to um, revisit that going forward. And, and a couple of notable changes to the pro rata share rules. One is that, um, as we know from existing law, subpar F inclusions are limited to current year earnings and profits of a CFC. Now, um, the new rules amended that definition to say current ENP is modified to mean the greater of ENP calculated under existing section 964 or the sum of the CFC subpar F income and tested income. So that's kind of a blocking and tackling mechanical mm -hmm. Um, rule. Um, additional guidance is provided with, with respect to CFCs that have multiple classes of stock and also added a, a, a anti-abuse rule that would disregard, the way it's written is that it would disregard any transaction or arrangement that has a principal purpose of avoiding U.S. federal income tax, including but not limited to transactions that reduce a U.S. shareholder's pro rata share of subpar F income. I I suspect there's going to be more guidance and taxpayer commentaries on this particular rule, but it, it's there, and companies have another new anti-abuse rule to think about. Yeah, very broadly written and already been a lot of questions, and we've seen commentary uh, about this provision, and I assume that we'll get hopefully some more clarity and guidance on this. Um, there are a couple of other anti-abuse provisions that were also included as a part of the reg package. One of those related to temporary acquisitions of QBI or of depreciable personal property. And then another one related to transactions that occurred that resulted in something called disqualified basis. Can you maybe share a little bit of uh, insight on, on, the, on that anti-abuse rule? Sure. And the, when, when the 2017 Act was uh, put into place um, and the guilty rule was added, Congress added an anti-abuse rule in the statute regarding transactions that would um, in increase QBI or the, the qualified business asset investment amount. And the proposed regulations added a rule to implement that particular um, directive from Congress. And legislative history also talked talks about maybe other broader anti-abuse um, pr provisions that could be possible. And so on the disqualified basis rule that, that you, you mentioned, Doug, I think um, in the proposed regs, there's also this broader anti-abuse rule dealing with situations where, and it's not limited to tangible depreciable property, but it's transactions that occurred before the effective date of the guilty provisions whereby the ba U.S. tax basis in certain assets are increased as a result of, for, for instance, a taxable transaction. And the amortization and de depreciation arising from certain types of those transactions would then not be allowed in the future 
but solely for purposes of determining deductions and losses related to the computation of guilty income. Yeah, so this is one of, of a number of provisions that companies were going to need to keep an eye on. It'll be interesting to see what comments we receive from taxpayers. We'll have 45 days, is that right, Matt, um, after publication, which is October 10th, I believe, or scheduled for October 10th. That's right. Um, to be able to get to get comments. Um, so there were a number of things, as you mentioned, that were not in there that will certainly be the subject of future podcasts. As you mentioned, the foreign tax credit, 163J, um, 245CAP-A, 267CAP-A. Each of those specific provisions apply generally for U.S. taxpayers, but they also, to take it back to this 952-2, could also have implications for guilty. So we will continue to monitor these provisions. We will continue to focus on these areas on cross-border tax talks podcasts. So thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of cross-border tax talks, a brief overview of 157 pages of regulations, but they're double spaced. They are double spaced and uh, a lot there. So thanks again to Matt Chen, one of our international tax partners here in our Washington national tax services practice. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Leader in the U.S. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. 